My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And today's show is a super interesting one. I'm really excited for this one because it's a little different than our usual type of episode. Talking about travel, I'm talking about a personality, an influencer who actually disappeared on a trip to India where he went in search of enlightenment. And I'm talking with the author of the book who wrote all about this. His name is Harley Rustad author of Lost in the Valley of Death, a story of obsession and danger in the Himalayas. And I'll be honest with you, when I first heard about this book, I thought, uh, probably not for FOMO sapiens, but it's very much for Patrick as somebody who spent time in the Himalayas, I'm interested in the region, always want to learn more about India. Uh, and of course, there's the mystery of the disappearance. I dug into the book and I realized very quickly that it's definitely a book for FOMO sapiens. And it was confirmed by the fact that I actually was at a party telling people about this book and how great it is. And a friend of mine named Amisha said, oh, I've heard about this story. And in fact, one of my friends was super involved in trying to find the person who disappeared, Justin Alexander. And it was really weird because I'd actually been looking him up on LinkedIn and even sent him a connect request because I just thought he seemed like a cool guy. And she introduced me to him. His name is Jonathan Skeels. And so it just was weird how it all came together. And so I thought I just got to have Harley on the show. Now, Harley Rustad is a journalist, author, and features editor at The Walrus Magazine. His first book has the greatest name ever. It's called Big Lonely Doug, the story of one of Canada's last great trees, and it was a 2018 finalist for the Shaughnessy Cohen Prize for Political Writing. And his writing has been featured in Outside, The Globe and Mail, Geographical, The Guardian, and CNN. He's originally from British Columbia and now lives in Toronto. In our conversation today, what you're going to hear is we're going to talk about the lure of India for travelers. And in fact, Harley spent time there himself, as did his father, and why people go there to look for insights and enlightenment. We're also going to talk about why that attracted Justin Alexander and who exactly was Justin Alexander, this influencer who disappeared a number of years ago. And finally, we're going to talk about the role of social media in feeding his desire to do more and more for his fans and ultimately you know whether or not that contributed to his disappearance and I would argue it does but it's a really fascinating story and I know you're going to love it and now my small ass this week is related to travel as many of you may know I have traveled a lot I've been to I guess 103 104 countries now and I love to travel and I love to feature my travels on Instagram. And so if you have a place that you would like me to feature and chances are I've been there, shoot me a note on Instagram, just find me at Patrick J. McGinnis and let me know what you think. All right, and now onto the interview. As you know, I like to start every conversation with the same question. And so I started my conversation with Harley with this question. What's the most important decision that you've had to make to get to where you are today? I think as as a as a journalist and and as a writer, um, you often get presented by a lot of decisions about what to what projects to take on or what um, things to say yes to, and 
often, you know, it's, it's often a world where a lot of people say no to you, you get pitches rejected, you get proposals rejected, and there's a lot of no's. And, and I think one of the biggest things that I've tried to do is to recognize when there's a possible yes, um, in the works there and really recognize that an opportunity. Um, and one of the biggest things that I, I said yes to, I was working interning at a magazine in, in Toronto uh, as, as an unpaid intern back in the day when that was allowed. <laughs> <laughs> and things were shifting. And I, I put myself in a position where uh, a job might op- open up as an, as an assistant editor. And I really pushed myself. I really uh, put myself out there to try to convince people that I really wanted to stay. I really cared about this publication. And it was a a decision to commit and to jump into something that I was really unqualified for at that time, to be honest, and scared to do that put me onto a track where I now am still at the magazine as a features editor almost eight years later and have written now two books and and have a lot of opportunities that have come from that. And um, it, I look back on that moment, you know, that week when I was leaving and I was hired a week later as a, as a big moment um, that put me on this track. You know, it's your new book is, I can only imagine what well, you're going to tell us now when, when that story landed on your desk, if you knew that it would turn into what it has today, which is a book called Lost in the Valley of Death. But this is a story that, you know, I got this book, you know, I was just telling you in the pre-interview that I, I was pitched this book by your publisher and I thought, I'm not sure if it's for FOMO sapiens, but I want to read it because I love to travel. And the story of a traveler who gets lost in India, like that sounds interesting to me. And then I picked it up and opened it and I realized actually <laughs> perfect for FOMO sapiens. But before we get into the book, talk about how you first heard about the story of Justin Alexander Shetler and how you decided that this should become a book. Yeah, so my my connection to this story and my uh, coming across this story kind of has quite long roots in my personal history, which is, you know, I, I've spent a couple years in India in total uh, as kind of a classic backpacker, post-grad, post-college backpacker for a year. And then I went back to work as a journalist uh, for another year based in, in Delhi and Kathmandu and and, you know, have these quite deep roots in a place. And my dad traveled there in the, in the late 60s. He was there at the same time as the Beatles. And so I was grew up with all these incredible travel stories about India. And, and really kind of when I was there, became very curious as to the reason why people travel to India, why it occupies such, this, such a fascinating place in our conscious in North America and in Europe for decades, for a long, long time. And, and what lures people there to embark on some kind of journey to either find yourself, some kind of spiritual journey, um, or just to go with a certain number of questions and a belief that India, above all other places, will help answer those questions. And so I kind of was primed in some ways for this story and, and was quite connected to Indian media. And I was I was at my desk and I was on Twitter, I think, or I was reading the Hindu newspaper, which is something I just kept in touch with. And I came across this article, small article, and it was two pictures that really captivated me. One that was taken by this 35-year-old American backpacker named Justin Alexander Shetler inside this cave deep in the Himalayas. And it was this haunting, beautiful self-portrait that he had taken. And alongside it was this other picture of a sadhu, a Hindu holy man, who Justin had had been led up to this holy lake 
in this in this place of the Himalayas called the Parvati Valley. And the sadhu had returned and Justin had not. And it was just this nugget, these two images of these two people and this nugget of a story that completely uh, engrossed me. And I wanted to know more about who Justin was, what brought him to the valley to set out on this pilgrimage, what had happened. Um, and I had known about the Parvati Valley for, for years, about its it's this incredibly beautiful sliver of, of the Himalayas, but it has this very tragic, dark history of dozens and dozens of international tourists and backpackers who've mysteriously vanished going back a couple decades. And Justin was the latest one to, to, to disappear. And I it had so many elements to a story that I, I just fell right into it and quickly found Justin's social media. He was very active on on Facebook and Instagram and, and YouTube with a huge following of, of, you know, people who lived vicariously through his travels and immediately saw all these contrasts within his character and, and a narrative that I became really quite consumed to, to better understand. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. Yeah, he's the ultimate, you know, something we talk about here on FOMO Sapiens is that FOMO versus reality. If you look, and I sort of got sucked into his socials, his Instagram, and you have a guy who, his life story is interesting, and you talk about this in the book. He sort of grew up as a survivalist in these wildlife schools, and he didn't really fit in, and he was kind of, if you ever read the book Into the Wild, 
uh, by John Krakauer, he he wanted to sort of live that kind of life of like living on the land and surviving on his own sort of wits and things like that. And he did that as a teenager. And then he sort of ended up working in this very high profile corporate job and traveling the world and buying fancy watches and hanging out in Dubai and the whole niner. And then one day he just decided he wasn't happy and basically gave away or sold everything he had, reduced all his belongings to like a backpack and decided to take off on this um, Indian made uh, motorcycle among other sort of modes of transport and live freely and put it on Instagram and social media and people started following. And if you look at the images, it's like super romantic. Mm -hmm. And you look at the, you have a, you know, he's a good looking guy living this really incredible life and he's self-reliant. And so it's really interesting to see how this kind of plays out. Now, as you kind of learned about his trajectory, I guess like, you know, I just sort of gave some colors of the story, but like, who was this person? You know, why do you think India, like so many travels, travelers over the years, you mentioned go to India for, for, for solutions or to find themselves. Like, why do you think he ended up there? Well, I think, and you kind of laid out um, a lot of his, his history, but one uh, part that that stood out to me was just how how many times he transformed himself. You know, he was that wilderness survivalist as a teenager, but then he became this quite successful San Francisco-based uh, uh, frontman for a punk rock band for several years, and and then got into the tech world uh, based in Miami. And every time he kind of reinvented himself, and you, it almost felt like he was pushing himself, adopting a new skin, and seeing if this was truly him. And I think for a lot of a lot of people have those types of reinventions and they try new things in their work or their relationships or um, or their lives. And ultimately, sometimes they they find the clarity that they want. And sometimes, you know, we don't. And so we go searching. And India has occupied this place in people's minds, as I said, as this place that can offer you that clarity. There's such a history of people who've gone there seeking enlightenment, seeking answers, you know, if, you know, I, I kind of say this in the book that if the, if the Buddha can sit under a tree and achieve what he achieved, you know, why can't I? Or so many people who followed in his footsteps, even if I can try to find one tiny fragment of what these other people have, maybe that will give me the clarity that I, that I seek and the direction in my life. And I think that's something that Justin really struggled with and really, like we all do, really tried to pursue and you know, I may not go to the same extremes that he went to. Um, a lot of people may not do that, but he was absolutely determined and felt like India was going to be a place that was going to offer that to him. His his father too had gone there in the seventies and had had a moment of, you know, at this Hindu temple up in Kashmir, this moment of illumination that that completely changed his life and set him onto the path that that he live the rest of his life on and, and the decades that followed. And I think Justin knew that and was built up by all of these stories, whether personal or books that he had read or stories that were all just kind of inundated by in media, in film and TV that, that you can go to India and you can embark on some kind of pilgrimage and you can find what you were looking for. And Justin had tried, he had tried it in all these different professions and all of these different places that he traveled to. Um, and India was, as one person who saw him uh, right before he went to India, was where he was going to find that other wall um, with the hope that he was going to push through it. 
you talk about this is I remember this was the part where my mind was like a little bit blown where I, you just had me um, as somebody who's traveled to India. But, you know, I did it kind of with my business school classmates. So it was, was not looking for enlightenment probably in the way that many others do. So I, you know, I didn't have the same experience, but, but I, uh, I will say that I did it in a period of my life actually when, and after the financial crisis, 2008, I, I went to India for a couple of weeks and it was revelatory because I saw, you know, I wasn't in Rishikesh, you know, at the Ganges, but I was in, you know, the streets of Bombay after the bombing of the, of the Taj seeing hundred you know, thousands of people sleeping under the stars because they're unhoused and just thinking like, whoa, you know, so it's, it, 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 there's so much there in the country. You talk about this phenomenon that has been written about for a long time, which is, it was originally a, a French author called it Le Fou de Londres, or uh, that's a fancy way of saying the India syndrome. I'm just, I'm showing off my French right now, my French Canadian heritage, but uh, that blew my mind. Tell us about the India syndrome because I just, I'd never heard of it, but it, to me, this is like one of those things that, again, it's like we're presented this image of like, oh, you know, this is amazing. But then underneath it, there's a lot of darkness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that book, Food and Land, which essentially translates to crazy about India, um, was written by this French uh, psychiatrist who was posted in the 80s to Bombay um, to the embassy. And he began noticing this curious phenomenon among French travelers who he'd see at the beginning of their trip and then at the end of their trip, noticing that they had undergone some kind of, in some cases, benign transformation, and in some cases, very extreme transformation. And what he essentially coined the term, or, or his research, um, through his research, the term was coined, uh, India syndrome, which is not a necessarily clinical diagnosis, but it is more of a, a spectrum of behavioral changes that take place among uh, largely Westerners, although it's been, it's been documented among all sorts of foreigners and Indians alike, of, this, of these changes. The, the perception and the understanding that India is going to offer you something, and when you arrive, you go to all sorts of lengths to try to find it. Um, and in that process can become slightly unhinged, slightly detached uh, and isolated. It's, it's, a, it's this really kind of nebulous set of, of factors. You know, drugs can often play a role in it, um, but it's, it's largely rooted in, in, you can kind of think of it as like a very, very extreme version of culture shock, but it, it, the results can be psychosis and, you know, completely detaching yourself from your previous life or believing you are a God reincarnate, um, some very, very extreme and very serious um, outcomes. And so it's been documented. I, I use a, a number of examples in, in the book of these very, very tragic outcomes of people who've gone to India, either wanting to embark on some kind of journey, wanting to have some kind of spiritual experience and pushing themselves to increase, increasingly greater extremes to get that. And when they do that, ultimately, in a lot of cases, there lies danger. And, you know, some, some people shed their belongings, burn their passport, cover their body in ash and, and become a sadhu and be walk around the streets uh, and, and never return home. When I was there in, in India in 2008, uh, sorry, 2009 in Rishikesh, I met a, a, a Swedish priest 
who had been in India for seven years, burnt, it, burnt his passport and had become completely consumed by what the country spiritually could offer him. And so it's this really fascinating set of forces and observations that people have been noticing over the years. And it has kind of cousins with uh, Florence syndrome and Jerusalem sy- syndrome, which uh, around the world, uh, which are kind of rooted in slightly different factors. But um, it's one of those things that almost sounds like it couldn't exist. Like, how could you just go to a country and be be so transformed by what that country offers you and what it could offer you? And yet it happens. I spoke to one Indian psychologist who said that he sees about a foreigner every week, a foreign tourist every week walk into his office who is experiencing some form of India syndrome, which was shocking to me. It's insane. I, I just wouldn't, when I read that, I, I, I just thought about, again, my trip to India was not, I was not sort of doing psychedelics in a ashram somewhere, but I can imagine for some people, especially if they're, already, I mean, you mentioned sort of like if they're already sort of predisposed Mm -hmm. to this kind of thing, it could happen. By the way, I will give you credit before anybody writes in, I think your pronunciation, Fudelind, is better than mine. FOMO. FOMO. Uh, So, you know, one thing that's kind of interesting too is, you know, so you kind of tie this into the story of Justin and that could be one of the reasons why he ended up going to such extremes and really pushing himself. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, he's like, I'm going to live in a cave. Now, when I first heard that, I was like, well, whatever, like living in a cave, like how big a deal could that be? No, I mean, it's living in a cave is intense. And and one thing that you talk about here, which I want to explore with you, because this is a moment, again, when I was like, wow, this is such a FOMO sapiens type book, is the fact that because Justin... Who was this guy who was living like an ascetic life and, you know, had gotten rid of all his stuff in general. But at the same time, he had this big online presence and he was constantly trying to create content that would be more and more sort of attractive to his audience. And so that meant that like, like any other, you always hear about these YouTubers that like go to more extreme, more extreme, more extreme, and then they can end up getting hurt or die or whatever, mm-hmm. or just doing things that get them a backlash. And so like, I was really interested in your thoughts about the connection between like, you know, if he didn't have an online presence, like would he have done all these things? Or was the fact that he had to create content that was more and more quote unquote compelling, was that a factor in, you know, his ultimate disappearance? Yeah, it's a really interesting aspect to the story and to to Justin's story because you know he when he opened his Instagram account in in 2013 I don't think he realized the power that it could have and you know social media was undergoing such a transformation at that time um, it was before you know branded content became formal and people started marketing themselves and influencers were kind of new and no one really knew what they were and and you know, post 2015, 2016, 2017, it just took off and, and Justin disappeared in 2016. And, and I think what your point was, was one of the things that really fascinated me with, with his story the most was this, this contradiction in who he was and this desire, you know, as a, as a reporter to try to understand that interviewing family and friends going back to his teenage years, but also who he wanted to be and how he presented himself in the real world and online. And what was really fascinating for me was to uncover discrepancies, to almost kind of catch him in moments where I knew he was exaggerating slightly, or I knew he was slightly adjusting a story because he knew it would play well with his followers online. 
And, you know, one of the examples of that um, in some ways is the last line that he wrote on his blog post and one of the last things he wrote on, on Instagram, which is, I'm going on this, you know, three-week trek with this sadhu to this holy lake with no reception. I'll be back in, in a few weeks. If I don't come back, don't look for me, was his final line. And that line haunted a lot of people and it clouded the search for him and all of these theories about what might have happened. Did he forsake his belongings one more time and continue on? And for me, as a kind of guiding subtext, this contrast between who he was in person, the reality of this person, and somebody trying to better understand that and trying to match that uh, with what he presented online. This, the images he posted, the stories he told, was a really fascinating angle for me to dig into. And I think it's impossible not to come to the conclusion that his following didn't have some impact upon, upon the, the extreme lengths that he went. And I think in some cases, and I talked to people who were in the valley, some of the last people to see him alive, and a lot of them remarked on the fact that he was really struggling with this. Am I doing something for my audience? Am I doing something for the glee of others? Or am I doing something for pure spirit? Because I want to enjoy this. Because this is something that I will get, get something out of. And to his final days that we know of, he was still racked with this question. And, and I think it is one of the more interesting aspects to his story. And I think is one of the things that makes his story you know, quite relatable and quite universal. Because I think everyone struggles with this or is confronted with this you know, our reputation that precedes us or the content that we create, you know, very general content in all of our lives and the truth that lies between that and what's in our hearts. And there's some people that are okay with that and are okay with it being different. And there are some people, I think like Justin, who deeply, deeply struggle with uh, that inconsistency. Yeah, he had a following, but it's not like, guy's not Paris Hilton, right? He's not, it, it was a, it was a following that was very engaged, it seems, but it wasn't like he was a household name. And so the feeling, you know, even people who may not have a huge, huge, huge following that, you know, they live off of can feel this pressure or desire to push things to an unsafe place. And I think that that even, I mean, anybody can be in that place. And so I think that's kind of what also really, I found really interesting. Now at the same time, you know, I have to imagine now that I've read your book and have been like telling everybody to get it because it, you know, it's out now, um, is that, and you know, you know, like how Bruce Chatwin's, you know, in Patagonia, like when I went to Patagonia, I had that book. Mm-hmm. When I went to India, I read Shantaram. You know, I guess I'm just basic, but still, I did. And the, those are the books that you put in the backpack when you travel. And I have a feeling this book is going to be in the backpack of a lot of people who head to India. And that maybe, you know, like I'm like, now I want to go to the Parvati Valley, although I'm kind of trepidatious, but you get my point. And I'm mm-hmm. curious, have you thought about, you know, it's sort of like, well, do you ever worry that somebody's going to read your book and then decide to go? the Parvati Valley and maybe, you know, take risks themselves in trying to sort of follow in his footsteps? I mean, I wouldn't, I, I hope that 
that Justin's story inspires people to to uh, push themselves in their own way to their own limits, and maybe a little bit a little bit back from that. I hope, I, and he inspired so many people, as you said on Instagram, to to take a chance and to uh, to explore and to push their push their bodies a little bit and to push their minds a little bit and to expand their horizons. And I think my hope in this book is that that I can help through Justin's story um, continue what he started. And I I do, and I have thought a lot about what either what readers may take from it and what they may be inspired by. But I also do hope that it encourages people to travel to India and even to the Parvati Valley, because like all of India, it is a, in some ways, the Parvati Valley is a bit of a microcosm of India. It, it contains so many of those contrasts and those contradictions that people either love or hate about that corner of the world. And as much as it has this this tragic, dark, dark history, it is one of the most beautiful places I've ever visited in, uh, in my life. Um, it is Himalayan India in miniature and it, close to touch. And spiritual India, it has, it has everything that, I, that travelers want when they go there. Isolation, you know, escape from Delhi's crowds and everything. And I want to go back. I'm desperate to go back. I would love to. And I think like a lot of India, you can see it can be overwhelming and there can be some danger and there can be some uncomfortable aspects to it, but there can be also be so much beauty and so much that you can get out of, get out of a trip there. And I hope that people do at least find within themselves what Justin, what Justin kind of embodied perhaps to the extreme, even if it's in miniature, even if it's a fraction of what he tried to, to do and, and embodied. I hope that it does inspire some people, maybe not to pack a bag and go on a year long trip to India and go to the Parvati Valley, but to go on an adventure that brings you closer to the answers that we all kind of hold, hold dear. I'm just gonna make you promise that when you go back, you just gave me FOMO. I, I want you to let me know because I'll swing through for a couple of days. Definitely. You can introduce me all the people. All right. The book is Lost in the Valley of Death. The author is Harley Rustad. You can find more about Harley at his website, which is harleyrustad.com or on Instagram or Twitter at hmrustad. That's R-U-S-T-A-D. Harley, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.